is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. Emilio Mwaikibake was a quintessential patriot whose legacy of civic responsibility will continue to inspire generations of Kenyans long into our future. That was Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta on the death of his predecessor, Mwai Kibaki, at the age of 90. Details coming up. Also, Sudan's de facto rural general Abdel Fattah al-Burhan is threatening to expel the UN special representative in Sudan. These stories and more on African news tonight. We start with our top story. Former Kenyan President Mwai Kibaki, who served as the country's third president from 2002 to 2013, has died at the age of 90. Mohamed Yusuf reports from Nairobi. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta announced on Friday the death of his predecessor, President Mwai Kibaki, who was 90 years old. Emilio Mwai Kibaki was a quintessential patriot whose legacy of civic responsibility will continue to inspire generations of Kenyans long into our future. Kibaki served as president from 2002 to 2013, winning election against Kenyatta and ending four decades of one-party rule. He came to power promising to fight corruption and transform Kenya's economy. While Kibaki ushered in economic reforms, corruption continued. His disputed re-election in 2007 against Raila Odinga, who accused him of rigging the outcome, led to the street clashes and the deaths of more than 1,100 people. But Kibaki was also hailed in 2010 for shaping Kenya a new constitution and improving social services. President Kenyatta praised the late president for transforming the country. The late former president's administration conceptualized and spearheaded transformation in crucial sectors such as education through the globally lauded free primary education program, infrastructure developments in transport and energy, and the increasing the availability and access to health care for his fellow Kenyans. At the end of two terms, Kibaki handed power to President Kenyatta, who was elected in 2013 and retired from politics. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. Seven suspects charged with stoning and burning to death Zimbabwean national Elvis Niati in Johannesburg, South Africa, two weeks ago, made their second court appearance today. The seven men faced charges of murder, attempted murder, kidnapping, robbery, extortion, and assault with intent to cause grievous bodily harm. To Sokomalo reports from Johannesburg. There was silence from friends and relatives in the gallery as the seven accused entered the dock. The defendants told the court that they were abandoning their earlier decision to be represented by private attorneys and chose to be represented by one legal aid attorney instead. Relatives in the gallery expressed surprise when the magistrate ordered all seven back in custody pending a bail hearing on Monday. 
The prosecution told the court that investigating officers were finalizing bail affidavits. National Prosecuting Authority spokesperson Pindim Jonondwane told reporters outside the court that they will be opposing bail. Uh, accused before court are facing uh, charges of a very serious nature and they are charged with offences that falls within the ambit of Schedule 6 so the onus is upon them to convince the court that there are exceptional circumstances that permit their release on bail. Mpatisin Lovu, the cousin of the late Nyati, was in court today. He told VOA that he welcomes the prosecution stance. Though we are still dealing with uh, trauma and pain, uh, but we are at peace that at least uh, the perpetrators have been found, have been arrested, and we believe that uh, they will get the sentence they deserve so that it sends a strong message out there to those who are thinking of doing the same. He said other members of the family were scared to come to court with some still not brave enough to face the alleged killers of Nyati. Relatives of defendants were not willing to speak to the media. Nyati's death has attracted international attention, with many urging the South African government to deal with the resurgent issue of xenophobic violence that has occurred since 2008. Nyati was killed by a vigilante group that was searching for illegal immigrants and suspected criminals in Johannesburg's Stipsloot Township. In the past year, anti-foreigner sentiment has grown in South Africa. Many South Africans say immigrants take jobs from them in a country where the unemployment rate stands at 35%. Tusokumalo for VOA News, Johannesburg. While the world focuses on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, relations between the UN-integrated transition assistant mission Sudan, UNTEMAS, and the leaders of the military coup there are dealing with growing tensions. General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, the de facto ruler of Sudan, threatened to expel the UN Special Representative in Sudan, Volker Perthius, accusing him of interfering in the country's affairs and violating his mandate. Joseph Siegel, Director of Research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, explained to VOA Senior Analyst Mohamed al-Shanawi the reasons behind the coup leader's tension with the mission. This seems to be a further sign that the military is not serious about a transition to civilian democratic rule in Sudan, as the military had committed itself to at the start of the transition process in 2019. Uh, UNITAMS was set up in 2020 to be an honest broker between the civilian actors and the military to try to facilitate a smooth transition to democratic government in Sudan. And you know, over the years, especially since the military coup in October of 2021, you know, there's been a sense that UNITAMS has bent over backwards to try to accommodate the military. And even when the military was clearly trying to derail the process, UNITAMS you know, was engaging them and trying to find a way to keep them on board in a dialogue. So, you know, UNITAMS has been um, exceedingly neutral in this process. So this latest criticism and threat on the part of the Sudanese junta against UNITAMS is, is clearly an, an attempt to intimidate the United Nations 
to go along with the military's effort to maintain its hold on power, despite you know the opposition to the military by the vast majority of Sudanese, which we continue to see protesting on the streets. Fadil Qadi, the official spokesperson for the UN mission, said its activities in Sudan are based on Security Council Resolution 2524, and their mandate covers four strategic objectives. Assist the political transition, progress toward democratic governance, protection and promotion of human rights, and sustainable peace. Could the UN mission achieve these objectives in Sudan? I think they can. Uh, In fact, we had seen up until the military coup of October 2021, there was notable progress in the transition. You had a civilian prime minister and cabinet, and they were undertaking reforms, and they were trying to fix many macroeconomic problems that Sudan faces Um, They were dealing with the other serious challenges, trying to put in place a system for a a democratic political structure. So, you know, the UN was playing a useful role by creating a neutral forum for dialogue between civilians and the military and, uh, you know, trying to help navigate this power-sharing arrangement. So I think we can say that, yes, it's possible. You know, during the civilian-led process, we saw... Sudan negotiate debt savings agreements, uh, foreign investment, foreign assistance with international actors. This is critical to Sudan's stability moving forward. Um, Sometimes it's underappreciated degree of crisis that uh, Sudan is facing because of the decades of macroeconomic mismanagement by the military. The economy is contracting. The country faces uh, 350% inflation. And this was even before the the global inflation that we've seen. Debt is on track to grow to $1.2 trillion by 2025 because of the irresponsible spending on the part of the military government. All of these problems or issues we saw in 2019 So these aren't new, and it's only with a civilian government that you're going to see stabilization in in Sudan, and and the UN has been a part of of trying to get there. That was Joseph Siegel, Director of Research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, speaking with VOA Senior Analyst Mohamed Al-Shanawi. The Kenyan government today hosted talks between a major rebel group from the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo and the Kinshasa government. These talks follow a meeting of the East African community yesterday. The goal is to help the DRC make peace with the scores of armed militias operating in the East. Journalist Jafar Al-Katanti in the Eastern DRC city of Goma has been following the story. He says many rebel militias in the region were not invited to the talks today, including one known as Kodeko. There is no one armed group of Congo who know about the talk, when, why, and no one is invited. So according to what Kodeko said, it seems that that talk just concern M23, which are in Nairobi. The M23 militia, a largely ethnic Tutsi militia, clashed with the DRC military several weeks ago, but withdrew to their earlier positions, saying they would wait for peace talks. 
The talks come a month after the DRC joined the Eastern African community. But so far, Jafar says, the DRC government has said little about the conclave in Nairobi. Uh, here in the country, no one know about the meeting. We just got a statement from the conclave, which was signed by all presidents, including the ours. But the government of DRC didn't do any statement, any communication in in order to let people know about what is going on. At yesterday's session, the EAC members called on all rebel groups in the DRC to seek a political solution to their grievances. The seven states played to create a joint force to help the DRC contain the rebels. However, Jafar says many in the region are concerned about that idea. He says a Goma civil society group has posted a reminder of civilian casualties in past joint operations, saying that... Rwanda troops and Congolese troops did many operations in Congo, joint operation tracking FDLR and other militia, but they didn't succeed and they did many crimes or against population. That was reporter Jafar Akatanti in Goma. He spoke early today with my colleague Kate Pondawson. Britain announced plans to send migrants to offshore processing centers in Rwanda while their asylum applications are processed. Even if successful, the migrants would not be allowed back to Britain. The government says that the policy will act as a deterrent to migrants as several thousand asylum seekers have crossed the English Channel in small boats from France in recent months. Dozens of people had drowned making the crossing. Critics say the policy is inhumane, unethical, expensive, unworkable, and in contravention of international laws on refugees. More than 4,500 migrants have crossed the English Channel from France to Britain in small boats this year, four times more than this time last year. There is broad agreement that dangerous journeys must stop. But there is also bitter debate over how that should be done. Britain's latest plan is to fly migrants 4,000 miles away to Rwanda, where they will be placed in holding centres while their asylum claims are processed. Britain's Home Secretary, Priti Patel, announced the plan during a visit to Kigali earlier this month. The persistent circumvention of our laws and immigration rules and the reality of a system that is open to gaming and criminal exploitation has eroded public support for Britain's asylum system and those that genuinely need access to it. Putting evil people smugglers out of business is a moral imperative. It requires us to use every tool at our disposal and also to find new solutions. Britain has paid Rwanda an initial $156 million for a five-year trial of the plan. That will cover setting up the initiative and adapting migrant holding centres like this former hostel in Kigali. Additionally, Britain will pay Rwanda for each migrant it accepts. Rwanda's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Vincent Biruta, said the plan would benefit everyone. This will not only help them, but it will benefit Rwanda and Rwandans and help to advance our own development. The policy has prompted a furious response. 
the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, the most senior cleric in the Anglican Church, criticised the policy in his Easter sermon. Subcontracting out our responsibilities, even to a country that seeks to do well like Rwanda, is the opposite of the nature of God. Migrant support groups are calling for safe routes for refugees to reach Britain. They say Britain should not be outsourcing refugee processing to Rwanda, a country where the British government itself has flagged human rights concerns. James Wilson is deputy director of the campaign group Detention Action. We think it's inhumane, it's, it's going to be very expensive and it won't be effective. You know, the UK is a signatory to the, to the Refugee Convention. We have a legal and moral obligation to be assessing uh, any asylum claims to the UK in the UK. Until 2014, Australia sent thousands of migrants to processing centres in Papua New Guinea and Nauru. It failed to deter migrants, says analyst Madeleine Gleeson, a senior research fellow at the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. In the first year of offshore processing being in place, more people arrived in Australia by boat than at any other time in recorded history of asylum seekers arriving that way. Britain has indicated that only some migrants will be sent to Rwanda, likely to be single men. Again, Madeleine Gleeson. What you might find is that the next boats of people coming across the channel uh, belong to those groups which are not going to go to Rwanda. So you might see increased numbers of women and children coming on that boat. There will be a cap on how many people can go to Rwanda. There are concerns the migrants will simply try again to reach Britain, so fueling the human trafficking gangs. But the British government says the prospect of being sent to Rwanda will deter migrants from embarking on the treacherous journeys across the English Channel. Henry Ridgewell for VUA News, London. Hundreds of mourners are gathering today in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the Midwestern United States for the funeral of Patrick Layoya, who was killed by a police officer earlier this month. Luyoya, 26, was an immigrant from the Democratic Republic of Congo. A police officer shot him in the back of the head after a struggle that began with a traffic stop. He was not armed at the time. The shooting on April 4th has sparked new Black Lives Matter protests over police killings of black Americans. God, when he comes with justice, he never looked the color of the skin, but he always looked the, the guilty one to make sure to pay what they have done. And that's what you will serve. You deserve to come to justice. Yes. And we will prevail. You will not shut us down. We will fight until when we get justice for Patrick. Amen. I just want you to think about this. And I'm asking you this question again. Are you your brother's keeper? Are you your brother's keeper? Are you your brother's keeper? Can you stand to fight for justice? Can you defend the right of your brother? Yes. Can you defend the right of your sister? Yes. So make sure that you fight hard. And by fighting hard is by changing the law, by voting and putting the right people who are going to stand and speak for you. You cannot just say and not take action. A word without action will not amount to anything. You have to put action. And the only way we can end this is to put the right people in the office. People are going to stand for you. People are going to 
fight for you and people are going to listen for you. That was Israel Siku, who has been representing the Layoya family. He was speaking at a rally yesterday calling for justice for Layoya. State officials in Michigan are investigating the death, but the name of the police officer involved has not been released. The city of Grand Rapids is home to a large community of immigrants from Africa. Layoya's parents, Peter and Dorcas, brought their family to the city in 2014 after spending a decade in a refugee camp because of conflict in the eastern DRC. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The United States reiterates its grave concern over continuing reports of ethnically motivated atrocities committed by Amhara regional authorities in western Tigray, Ethiopia. Many of these are documented in a recent joint report by Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. In particular, said State Department spokesperson Ned Price in a statement, we are deeply troubled by the report's finding that these acts amount to ethnic cleansing. Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch's report concluded that newly appointed administrators in the western Tigray zone, as well as regional officials and security forces from Ethiopia's Amhara region, are responsible for a campaign of ethnic cleansing, as well as crimes against humanity and war crimes, targeting Tigrayan civilians in western Tigray since the conflict began in November 2020. Spokesperson Price noted that thousands of Ethiopians of Tigrayan ethnicity reportedly continue to be detained arbitrarily in life-threatening conditions in western Tigray. We urge the immediate release of any such remaining detainees and call on relevant authorities to grant international monitors access to all detention facilities. It remains our firm position, said Mr. Price, that there must be credible investigations into and accountability for atrocities committed by any party to the conflict as part of any lasting solution to the crisis. We urge the government of Ethiopia to cooperate with the UN Commission of Experts on Human Rights in Ethiopia. Continued reports of atrocities underscore the urgency of ending the military conflict. The United States supports the declarations of a cessation of hostilities by the government of Ethiopia and the Tigray Regional Authority and welcomes the news that they have been followed by initial convoys of life-saving assistance. In keeping with these declarations, the U.S. renews its call on all armed actors to renounce and end human rights abuses and violence against civilians. The United States reiterates its call for all foreign forces to withdraw from Ethiopia, as well as for the regional state authorities to remove their security forces from neighboring regions. Spokesperson Price urged all parties to take necessary steps to ensure the cessation of hostilities, unhindered and sustained humanitarian access, transparent investigations into human rights abuses and violations by all actors, and a negotiated resolution to the conflict in Ethiopia. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voanews.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, thank you again for tuning in and choosing the Voice of America.
Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, Saturday.